Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Object of UFOs. Should you introduce them to the subject? How can you help children who are frightened by the subject or who believe they or their parents are being abducted by aliens? Hello and welcome to the 876th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you live from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, in or well, that also on uh, par- the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and TuneIn.com. <coughs> I'm Ben, and those sky-high questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and Dad Paul. And uh, today we we bring you an old friend on a new approach to a familiar subject. And if you'd like to join us on the air, you can give us a call at 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. Or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or get in touch with us via any sort of social media platform, in, including uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Philip Mantle is a renowned British researcher, author, and publisher on the subject of UFOs, or UAPs as the new term would have it. The CEO of Flying Disc Press, Philip, is the uh, former director of investigation for the British UFO Research Association, is the Mutual UFO Network's representative for England, and is an honorary member of the Research Institute on on Anomalous Phenomena in Ukraine. He is an international lecturer on the subject of UFOs and has also worked for a variety of TV and radio companies around the world. Uh, Philip has appeared on our show many times, and we're very uh, pleased to have him with us today. His website's philipmantle.com, that's Philip with one L, and flyingdiscpress.blogspot.com. So, Philip Mantle, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. Nice to speak to you again. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on, uh, and we are particularly excited to to jump in into the show. So I guess we'll just hop right into it. So, Philip, your new book, uh, "Introducing UFOs: A Young Person's Guide," is it's a very good introduction for anyone who's kind of new to the subject, you know. And uh, as speaking as somebody who is a former young person, it's <laughs> uh, it, it, it is kind of nice to kind of have like you know you're not quite sure where to start when it comes to to hopping into cases you oftentimes you just go right into the deep end um but in this case you use some of the most famous case studies uh how did you decide which cases to use for young people yes it's it's a a good a good question ben i mean uh, the, the project to write this book has been on the back burner for a number of years mm. I, I started it a while back uh and then it got put to one side but then when that when the uh when the COVID lockdown came earlier this year, uh, there was no excuses then. I thought, uh, <laughs> I'd better get it finished. And, of course, it's illustrated by a friend and colleague of mine by the name of Ronald Kinsella. Uh, as, as for which cases to, to choose to go into the book, um, as, as you're probably aware, it is um, organized decade by decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I picked three cases from each decade. Uh, and I tried... Three things, really. One was to have some well-known cases because it's part of UFO history to ignore them. So, you know, things like Roswell, for example. Um, but then put in a few that perhaps weren't so well-known, um, like the, the Mundrabilla case f- uh, from Australia. Uh, and then, you know, pick cases from around the world to illustrate that whatever the UFO phenomenon is, it's it's international in scope. Doesn't recognise any boundaries or, or or borders. 
So that that's what was in my mind when I was picking the cases. Uh, and it was difficult with some because I didn't want to make the book uh, an encyclopedia because that would probably defeat the objective. You know, you give a, a you know a teenager an encyclopedia and you you know oh, I'm not reading that. So mm. I tried to pick cases as well that that I where I could sort of shrink them somewhat without without spoiling them, without ruining, you know, the facts behind them. Whether I've done that or not remains to be seen, but that, that was always in the back of my mind. For example, these past few years I've worked with Calvin Parker, who was a witness to the events in Pascagoulan in 1973, mm-hmm. and we have amassed a huge amount of information. And So to try and condense that down into about half a dozen pages, it, I just just couldn't do it so you won't find that in the book so you know, that's just an example of things that was was considered but was was put to one side so to speak so that that's how it all came about but, you know i got i got to be honest you know i'm writing the book so i put one or two of my favorite things in as well that i personally like and i hope others do as well and uh, and that's how we, and that's how we, we started off simple as that yeah it makes makes sense so you know, you, you kind of mentioned you didn't want to have an have an encyclopedia, right? You don't want to just throw some th- throw a book at somebody and say, "All right, here's here's sort of a beginner's guide to it." But here's here's a question: What age group did you target with this book? What what was kind of your main audience? Well, for, for me here in the UK, I'm t- I'm talking about high school, you know, mm. te- a teenage te- round about the teenage audience. Um, because that's the round about the kind of time when I really got interested in, uh, seriously interested in things. I'd always had an interest in the paranormal for as far back as I can remember. But um, serious interest began when I was at high school. Because it's the kind of age, you know, you start to make your own decisions, develop your own ideas, your own likes and dislikes, you know. The time when you fall out with your mum and dad because you don't want to do as you're told, you know. <laughs> We've all been there. Oh, and, ben never uh, did that. <laughs> tried my uh, best. So you know, so so that's the plus the fact, Ben. You know, I've lectured at a few high schools mm-hmm. and colleges, and um, so I always try and think back to the questions that the the young people asked me. Uh, it's not always trying, easy to try and remember, but I, I can remember some of them. So I'm thinking, well, they're asking these questions. Well, I'll, you know, I'll try and fit the book that might give them their answers, or certainly some of the answers, or point them in the direction where they may be able to find those answers for themselves. What um, questions were asked? Like, it was there? Would if, if you had to narrow it down to like two, like maybe one question that was asked the most? What what would that be? Oh, do aliens exist? Even in, you know, that's a very general way of putting things, but, you know, are, are UFOs aliens? Mm. Um, so what we try to do with the book is not to dictate to anybody. Um, and come the end of the book, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we have uh, three ideas of what UFOs may be. You know, the extraterrestrial idea, perhaps they are secret military devices of some kind, or it's some kind of uh, rare natural phenomena that still eludes us. Mm. Um, so, you know, we want out to dictate, you know, here's some ideas of what they may be. And I, I don't know about you gentlemen, but I know when I was young, when I picked up a book, first thing I did was 
turned to the back cover because I usually told you what what it was about, and then I used to flick through it to see what the the photos and the illustrations were like. So I decided um, the format of this book is a large format, so it's eight by ten inches, mm. uh, and I decided to have a, a UFO photo section in the middle of it. Uh, and there's a little introduction to it. The first photograph you see is actually a fake. It's from the Project Blue Book uh, archives. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I say, make up your own mind. So what I did for that segment of the book, I asked a number of colleagues in different parts of the world, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm working on, which UFO photographs do you think would be the best to include that you think may well be authentic? And they even sent me things that, that I'd never seen before, you know, from Russia and Turkey and places like that. There's, there's well-known ones in there as well, like the Paul Trench uh, photographs from the 1950s. But again, you know, we're, we're allowing the, the reader to make up their own mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's even a little section about maybe a few pointers what to do if, you, if you're fortunate enough to, to have your own sighting. Uh, having been a UFO investigator... Well, for longer than I can remember now. It's amazing the amount of time, for example, people said, well, I have my camera there, I never thought to use it, or I had my binoculars, or, you know, there was someone standing five yards away from me, and I never thought to draw their attention to it. Just little little things like that. And and I bring it right up to date, you know, with, with the, the recent Tic Tac videos and that kind of thing, and the release of documents by the various governments around the world. And um, and so it's it's sort of, it's about 150 pages, not too text dominant, a nice selection of illustrations and photographs. And then I thought, would be nice for each chapter if we have a, a designer piece of artwork for it. Now I knew Ronald Kinsella, uh, you know, friend and, and colleague, he's an author in his own right and an illustrator. So I asked Ronald if he would do the illustrations and he was more than happy to do so. So each chapter has its own unique piece of artwork to introduce it. The reason for that was the hope that, you know, young people browsing through it to see that and it, and it kind of sparks their imagination. Perhaps they'll want to read a bit more, you know, and, and, and follow that, 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 uh, that illustration. So it's a combination of, of different media that we hope will will serve its purpose. Okay. Uh, before we get into the questions I have, uh, Philip, we have uh, questions from our uh, very faithful listener, Peter, in Bogota, Colombia, who uh, sends in some very good questions almost every week. Uh, mm. Ben, you have those, dear? I do. Uh, so Peter writes to us uh, the first of two questions, which is, uh, since adults have yet to solve the UFO mystery after 60 years, I'd argue probably longer, but we'll go with 60, uh, I'm interested in the reverse. Children explaining UFOs to us. Children often have uh, amazing insights. What is the most interesting explanation they have given you? Well, I, I don't think it's it's the information. that A lot of young people don't have the vices that, they, that we we gather as we grow older, perhaps. Mm. And... Um, I remember it's not in the book, but it's a case that I investigated very early on when I when I got involved back in 1980, a place just a few miles from where I live, and and it was a the landing of a UFO in daylight. Um, uh, cutting a long story short, there's some children playing out in a playing a ball game outside, uh, and they see this thing, 
Um, they lived in a cul-de-sac. At the end of the cul-de-sac were some trees and field. And this thing drops down into the field. So they run, one of them runs into his mum. You know, this thing's landed in the field. And cut a long story short, you know, I remember interviewing them to this, you know, as clear as day. They never called it a, a UFO or a flying saucer or a spaceship. Now, <clears throat> there were three humanoids seen there as well. They never called them aliens or anything like that. They didn't have the vices that we, we, you know, we, ad- we adopt as, as we get older. And, um, a little interesting st- story to that. This, this, this was in 1980. So it's 40 plus years ago. And they were all, it, four or five young children uh, and their mum, uh, a Mrs. Westerman. And earlier this year, I did a, a, a broadcast for somebody. I can't remember who. And I told this story in full, but I didn't mention the lady's name. Not on purpose. I just forgot to mention Mrs. Westerman. I got, I got an, an email from a lady in um, New Zealand. And, and the town where this took place in, in the county where I live in West Yorkshire is called Normanton. Former mining town. It's only a couple of miles from here. And she said, I used to live in Normanton. What was the family's name? So I said it was Westerman. She says, no, it can't be. My best friend was called Westerman. I wondered if, it's, if she knows anything about it. So she emailed her best friend in England, who's now married and has changed her name, of course. And lo and behold, she was one of the Westerman children that I interviewed all those years back in 1980. <laughs> uh, and I got an introduction to her and she's, she's given me, a, you know, some more comment. Um, since then, she gave me a statement. But, uh, so it's not necessarily what they say. It's, it, to me, it was how they, how they frame their, their questions and, uh, you know, when they've, when they've witnessed something themselves, uh, for me, it's, it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the best clarity of a UFO witness. Um, but that's just my opinion. That's all, you know, and, and that's the way I found it. So all this, you know, is, is, we all know you can go online, you can type in Google, get your Google and type UFO and you'll have half a zillion websites. Doesn't mm. mean that the one that comes to the top of the list is the best. And, um, I'm not saying my book's better than anyone else, but, you know, I've got history in the subject. 40 plus years being involved, directly involved, you know, mm-hmm. talking to young people. I, I had two young people of my own. They're my daughters. <laughs> they, they're not interested in the subject at all, but they've grown up with it all their lives. So some of their, their comments, you know, rattled around my, my, my head as well. Um, so hopefully we've got a nice little package that if, if you're at high school and, and, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever subject bores you. Um, you, you know, I remember when I left school, didn't really know what to do. No idea. And I went from one job to another. I ended up working in a factory and no objection to that, but I had an escape. I had a route out of the, the boredom because sometimes when you're working in a factory, guys, it can be very repetitive, extremely boring. But my out was UFOs. That was my mm. escape route, was UFOs. And I, I used to work night shifts. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. But I got some of my best ideas working nights. I was that bored, you know. Um, 
So, 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 you know, I've long since left the factory and it's closed now, so it doesn't really matter. My boss knew anyway, so it didn't make any difference. So, you know, I'm trying to think if, if, if you've got an interest that's not on the curriculum of the school or college that you go to, then perhaps, you know, this, this book might, might, might do the trick. You can have it in the old fashioned format as a book or in today's technology, you can download it to your mobile phone, you, you know, your Kindle, your laptop or all three if you want. Yeah, that's I mean, what I did. Yeah. 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 So it's available in, in, in both formats. And um, hopefully, you know, some young people will, will pick it up and think, ah, yeah, this is this is this is pretty good. And uh, keep my fingers crossed. Mm. Well we'll move on. I, I have a I have a question, but I'll I'll, I'll kinda of tuck it in for later. Um, but I have it written down just in case. But we'll we'll finish up Peter's questions uh and his last question is uh, as director of British UFO Research Association for many years, uh what is the weirdest case your group has investigated? Oh that's a difficult one. I mean, the the association goes way back, um, and they have a huge archive of, of files. Um, the weirdest. I mean, what what I what I did again during lockdown. I'm not going to say it's the weirdest, but it is pretty weird. Is I've written another book that will be out next year, and it's a book that deals with <coughs> UFO <coughs> excuse me UFO landing accounts in Britain only. Nowhere else. And there was one case in there, and it's from right off the south coast of, of the UK. We have an island called the Isle of Wight. Mm. Lovely place, you know, really is a nice place. You can get on the ferry and go across. Uh, and it took place on the Isle of Wight. Don't ask me the date because I can't remember it. Um, and it was two young kids that it involved. And they were playing, you know, Going out, running across near a golf course. Their, their father was was nearby. They weren't running wild, and they came across this most bizarre humanoid. Is what is what I what I'll call him. And I'd never come. You know, he's got two arms, two legs, and all that lot. But the description of it is is so bizarre. I find it difficult to. to it, 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 it was almost as if he's, he was made of felt. I don't know if you guys in in the in the states. When you were kids, you could buy little pictures that you could pieces of felt, and you could stick them together and make mm-hmm. a picture. Yeah. But this is all this is like a man, but he's standing in front of them, uh, and he, and he he converses with them via a a box that he has. And it it kind of reminds me of like a karaoke box, mm. you know, with the microphone. Mm. And he invites them to his his residence. And the, the the UFO reminds me of um, an old tin hut that you used to have at the side of the road when sometimes when people were digging the road up. <coughs> you know, they don't have them now, but sometimes it's just like a little t- piece of corrugated tin. Uh, but the the front was usually open. It was a place to put their axe, the pickaxes, the shovels, whatever they were using. They weren't lying around. But this this thing had you know had a door on. They went in it and they describe it, and it is the most bizarre thing I've come across in in that respect. So bizarre, I find it difficult to describe it. And when I was writing the book, I thought, no, I can't put that in. I can't use that. But I thought, well, I have to because there's no reason why it should be discounted. 
just because it doesn't fit in with what we think we know. Mm. Uh, and the children went and told their, their you know, their, their father about it and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's in there. It's, it's in the book. And it is very, very bizarre indeed. Like I said, I, I left it and left it and left it again. I can't put that in. I can't put that in. But I thought, no, I, I have to. Because if somebody highly unlikely found out later that I discarded it because it didn't fit, then I'd be guilty anyway. So I'll put it in the book and you can read it yourself. If you want to discard it, then you can do. You, you know, you, so that, that is one of the, 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 the very curious things that I came across uh, f- from various files, you know. Um, so I hope that the young man in Bogota um, remembers that. Uh, and maybe sees the book next year and treats himself to a copy, you know. But it is very, very puzzling indeed. All right. Uh, now we have, uh, before we get into my questions too, uh, and before we take our break, we have a question from Cousin Rick Eno, who is our uh, sometime co-host here and uh, who is a... Um, our show reporter in Northern California and uh, is with the California MUFON. Uh, let's put the shoe on the other foot. In your investigations, has anyone ever reported encountering, encountering alien children? Um, yes, I, I would have to say. Um, back in 1994, I published my first book uh, with a colleague of mine called Carl Negatis. Carl was a, um, a Fleet Street journalist. Uh, and public, he went on to run a highly successful public relations business of his own. And um, without consent, he's all about missing time and abduction cases. Again, just in Britain and Britain only. And there's a lady in there uh, called Jane. Jane lives in West Yorkshire. And in the early 90s, she contacted me. Um, first of all, she told me about a, a UFO sighting she'd had as a teenager. When she was 16, she lived in the city of Leeds. Just some strange lights. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll document it anyway. And I'm, I, I went to visit her, met her, her partner. And then out of the blue, she started telling me about these ongoing, what we call abduction accounts. It wasn't a one-off. She told me the first one. Um Basically, she was taken from her, 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 her bed one evening to some fields that lay nearby. These humanoid beings, the, the UFO was, was a dome shape. Um, she was given some, some, what we call sweeties, you call them candy. Uh, the little round things and they are colored. We call them smarties. Uh, I don't know if you have these, if you have them in the States, but to yeah. eat. And yeah. she said she was placed in a bath to get clean. She's naked at this point. But the bath seemed to fit her body absolutely precisely, as if it was made especially for her. And so, like I said, Jane's encounters continued. And one of the things she started talking about was being pregnant, although she wasn't, and having what you would call alien babies, uh, hybrids. And she described the way they look as being, the way you could tell the difference really was the hair. She said, if you ever buy a cheap child toy doll, one of the really cheap ones, the hair is always really cheap and horrible. 
And that was the difference. And, um, you know, Jane wasn't into the UFO literature. I, I, I walked around the house. She had no books or magazines or anything like that. What is peculiar, gentlemen, is that it's about the same time when our colleague, the late Bud Hopkins, was just starting to write about this type of thing himself. And, and what Bud called them, and I'll never forget, he called them the smart baby dreams. That was his terminology for it. Mm. Um, and, and he was just starting, beginning to, to release some of this information. And there is no way on earth Jane could get her hands on it. So what I what I did, I I tape recorded the uh, the conversations with G, with, G, uh, with this lady with Jane, transcribed them literally, and I sent copies in the post. There was no email, no no internet in these days. Uh, so I would mail them to Bud, uh, and he would write back after reading them, suggesting s- certain questions that I might ask Jane. So the next time I met her, uh, you know, I'd have Bud's, as well as my own, but I'd have some of Bud's questions there as well. So uh, I hope that answers your your, your cousin's uh, question. Yeah, that I would say, yes, I have uh, that has been reported to us, yes. All right. Well, let's take our mid-show break here. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley and with our guest today, the great Philip Mantle. And we'll be right back, so stay with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? All right. We're back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's WOON, 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in the beautiful Blackstone River Valley of New England. And we have our very, very good friend and our great guest, Philip Mantle, uh, from the UK, West Yorkshire. And, uh, I'll start with the pat on the back. Okay. Um, Philip, first of all, congratulations on the success of Flying Disc Press. And, and, and I have to, Say that when I first heard you were going to uh, had, had retired and were, and were going to start that publishing firm, I said, uh, "Well, I, gee, I hope he can do it, but I don't think he can." Right? <laughs> but my goodness, what a success! I mean, everywhere I go, I hear about the books and there's some outstanding authors. And again, congratulations on the success of that. that we were we were very impressed. Thank you, Paul. I had the same doubts myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Okay, uh, now I love your book. Uh, it is truly very informative. It's, and I learned things from it too. Uh, but I thought, but you kind of explained this already because you said it was aimed at more or less at the high school age, uh, students. But I think you or someone, I don't know, us or whoever, maybe all of us together, whatever, should, should write a book, uh, for the younger, uh, people, uh, of, of less age because the fears that we run into uh, can be very difficult. For example, when, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, uh, scattered throughout the audience at, uh, UFO conferences, uh, very frequently are, are children. Right? Not, not many that we've seen. Yeah. 
but uh, I've I've had them come up to me, uh, you know, with, with their parents and sometimes without their parents, and say, "Gee, you know, are aliens going to hurt me?" Uh, and very occasionally, uh, they believe they're being abducted. They have very strange dreams, as they say, or, or or their parents fear they're being abducted, or they fear their parents are being abducted. And I think Cassandra Eason has written uh, a little bit about this. But as far as um, how to address the fears of children uh, with something, a phenomenon that, that may seem so overwhelming that, that even you know the military can't do anything about it. How would you suggest, uh, just um, from your own experience, Phil, how, how do you talk to children, you yeah. know, younger than high school age? Well, it's very, it's very difficult. I mean, first off, I'll say that I did write some little booklets for a very young audience many years back now. Oh, okay. um, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, what happened with the booklets, I was originally sent them to look at them and edit them because the writers, I have no idea who they were, were just writers. And they got some facts clearly wrong, so I pointed that out. And, uh, and the publisher said, well, okay, why don't you come down to London and we'll have you rewrite them and we'll put your name on the cover with them. So so, so that, that did happen. But um, it's a very difficult question you've asked, Paul. I'll go back to the lady we were, I was just talking about called Jane. Um, she had a, do- a daughter. And um, it, it got to the stage because my conversations with Jane went on for a couple of years, on and off. This wasn't over a matter of months. And um, obviously her, her daughter started to grow. And uh, her daughter brought me a drawing of something she'd seen. So it was at that point I, I walked away. Um, not completely. I was always there at the end of a telephone. I didn't live that far away. Because to me that was, you know, beyond beyond my pay grade. Um, it was out. I was out of my depth when it came to to speaking to children. And we live in in that kind of age now, um, in a politically correct politically correct age, where you know you might be suspected of something else. So I all I can remember saying to the to the youngster, I think she was about I don't know, eight or nine years old by this time was that um, I just said, you know, just ask your mum. Your mum's okay, your dad's okay. I mean, I I spoke to her father, he'd never seen anything. Um, Jane's parents had as well, they'd seen things. Well, this will make you laugh. It's it's not meant to be funny, but I found it funny. (laughs) Uh, Her mum and dad had this encounter one night, and her mum turned around and said, it's not me you want, it's our Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mum. Thank you very much, mum. So I kind of used her mum as an example and said, look, your mum's fine. Nothing's happened to your mum. Nothing bad's going to happen. And and left it at that. So it is a very difficult um, question. You know, and I didn't feel as if I was qualified to, to, to be doing that kind of thing. So I, 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 I walked away at that point. But I still remember it. I remember it very, very well. Well, one thing we've always done, uh, whether it, and, and we, we would always, I started out as a, as a, you know, ghost investigator, but it kept leading to UFOs, uh, in, in many cases as, uh, we kind of expanded the envelope, as they say. And I, I've always advised parents, and today we do the same thing. Don't shut your children out of the discussion. Uh, they very often see things that you don't. 
you know, yeah. and very often uh, sometimes have wisdom that you don't. And uh, if you think that they're not having the, the negative experience with the entity or or, or uh, possible, um, you know, involvement with whatever you're seeing in your house or or the, or the lights in the sky or whatever, uh, you're probably wrong about that. Now, now Ben. Uh, came in very handy when he was young and first started at the age of 13 because kids would talk to him mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, the old guy, me, you know, uh, even their parents. Uh, so Ben, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think one of, one of the, uh, one of the really, really important factors is, you know, Philip, you, you actually made a really good point, which is, you know, we're not really entirely qualified. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I think that that, it's such a touchy subject because it can be very traumatic, right? And yeah. and I, I I think that maybe it's there's sort of that that natural instinct of saying, hey, you know, I'm not qualified for this. If I if I worked in social services or something, or or happened to know somebody that that would be able to kind of talk kids through this experience, I, I think that we would all probably benefit from having a, a resource that we could turn to. Fortunately, we have um, Chuck Credo on on our our side, who's who's involved up in um, up in Maine and New Hampshire, and um, you know he's he he works in social services, and and he's you know great to great to have around, and he offers insight that not a lot of us really think about. I mean, Dad, you have a PhD in philosophy, I have a degree in audio engineering. It's like, <laughs> like we're well, not, we're, I, I have no academic qualifications at all. I mean, not one. I, I, I never never, but. What you'll notice, I know we're talking about children here, and that, um, but when you look at um, introducing UFOs, we haven't we haven't diluted anything because there is the Betty and Barney Hill abduction in there. There's Travis Walton in there, so we're not oh, yeah. not hiding things. Um, but um, it can it can work the other way as well. I mean, I remember when I was Pew Four as director of investigations, uh, we had a a young man, I want to say young, he was early 20s, mid 20s, came from the north of England, the northeast. And we had a sighting come in, and it was in his region. He was one of our investigators, only new to the subject, I, I, I admit, but it didn't seem anything out of the ordinary. So I asked him if he'd look into it. And um, not long after, we were, were hosting a conference, and he turned up, and he said, I'm finished with the subject. Uh, that's it. I'm done. Uh, what had happened that these this this married couple had had a close encounter and it frightened the living daylights out of him and he wasn't they weren't frightened he was um, and I said fair enough so I I, I took on the, 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 the took over from him and and uh, it, it didn't frighten me but it, it frightened him so even even an adult can be scared and and I mentioned my first book, Without Consent. One of the the gentlemen in there that I interviewed was a chap called David. Only young at the time, only a teenager. Uh, lived in a place near a place called Pefele, which is on the northwest coast of Wales. And he had a full-blown encounter. He remembered it all. So, uh, And I remember interviewing David and I said, well, you, you know, didn't realize it at the time. Can we go to the location where this happened? So he said, yeah, sure. And I took a couple of photographs because it was out in the open. It's only when I had those photographs developed and I looked and David stood there like this, like a blank. You know, you could see he wasn't at ease. And then I, th- I thought back to my discussions with him where we talked about his job 
you know, what his other interests were. And he was fine. But when it came to talking what had happened to him, his old demeanor changed, you know. And so when the book came out, I sent a number of people that are in the book a copy. And David was one of them. And he, he, he confirmed it in writing that he'd received it. And then it was, I think, three years later that he wrote to me again and said, I finally read the book. And he, I said, oh, well, fine, great. So I spoke to him on the phone. And what happened is that he had nightmares about the encounter. And they got so bad he had to go and have hypnotherapy. Not regression, but hypnotherapy to get rid of the nightmares. He'd now grown up. He'd started a young family himself. But it terrified the living daylights out of him as well. Um, so... so it's, it's difficult, you know, it, it can affect youngsters and adults in, in, a, in a, as you gentlemen know, a, a wide variety of different ways. Yeah. I spoke to other people, they thought it was great. You know, they took mm. a very positive stance from it. Um, so when it comes to young people, I don't think there'll be that much difference. Um, but that, that's just my guess. But what, like I said, when it came to what I would class as children, um, certainly 16 and under, um, you know, I, I just kept, I just walked away. I, I'm not qualified to deal with that. Mm. And, um, and, and I would do the same today. If, if it happened again, I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't hesitate. And, uh, I, I would still have to say, well, I, I'm not qualified for that. You'll need to seek professional advice. And that's yeah, the yeah. best thing I can yeah. say. That, that's very, very astute. Um, certainly, you know, you might not have advanced academic degrees or anything, but, but you have instinct and you have experience. Right. Which, which most people do not. So that's very important. But no, we certainly, uh, uh, relate to everything you said. Uh, yeah, we have Chuck Credo. We also have a behavioral scientist who works with our group, uh, who does that professionally. And, um, so you, you do, and, and we have always, uh, tried to know when to step back, uh, in, in any of these cases too. And, Ka- and Kathleen Martin, uh, niece of Betty and Barney Hill will tell you the same thing. Uh, when she consults with us on, on uh, crossover phenomena, as as we call it. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you're right. I mean, th- there there's plenty of fear among adults as well, and uh, sometimes more so. Uh, we often wonder uh, about the, and maybe maybe you could shed some light on this too, Philip. The um, almost the the personal nature of many of these experiences. For example, uh, we often hear of cases where people that there'll be a, a group of people. Some of them will see the object in the sky or the light or whatever. Others will not, and and they're right there. Uh, well, I, th- I think it's quite fortunate. We're speaking today, or just one day after of the 40th anniversary of what we call the the Rendlesham Forest incident here mm-hmm. in the UK. Yeah. The the initial sighting began on Boxing Day, early morning Boxing Day, uh, 1980. Uh, in uh, Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, the forest is between two air bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. It involved, um, to begin with, three airmen you know, from the base. They left one at the roadside. To two two gentlemen what went into the forest. That was John Burroughs and Jim Pennison. And they got quite close to this source. They'd, some, they'd seen these lights descending into the forest. And, and, and I keep asking this question. I know it's 40 years on, but when you speak to Mr. Penniston, I put, uh, before I go any further, I'll say I've no doubt that these two gentlemen experienced something 
out of the ordinary that night. I don't think there's a mundane explanation for it. However, Jim Penniston says he saw this triangular shaped craft with red lights on the top, blue lights underneath, had some kind of markings down the side. However, his colleague, John Burroughs, he's just a few yards away, says, I only saw these strange lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know, told us the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what they've said. And, and Mr. Pennison said, you know, I, I, we were there for about 40 minutes and I walked around it and I touched it and all this lot. And John says, well, I never saw you do that. I never saw any of that. I just saw these strange lights. And uh, in fact, I was listening to an interview that John did just yesterday. And he still sells the same story. He thinks he now has a, a, a theory or an explanation for it. But um, two people, only a few yards apart, the same stimulus, but yet they see something entirely different. Yes. Uh, and well, I, I don't, I, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a puzzle. It, it is. And I think uh, Jim has a new, uh, I should say John has a new uh, book out. Uh, yes. on this too so um but uh, no we, we know both gentlemen very well and we like them both and, and i've never seen i don't know about ben I've, I've never seen any evidence of any uh any sort of deliberate uh, dishonesty but they, but we've seen firsthand how how subjective these experiences can be mm. and uh, that that gets back to uh, the fears now uh i had a uh much to my own shock a bigfoot encounter in an area of Pennsylvania, which has all sorts of UFO activity going on. Uh, we have neighborhood meetings where we have uh, 20 and 30 people show up, and, and they, they've all had or almost all had Bigfoot and UFO experiences. And uh, my experience was, my encounter was very positive. But a little girl uh, from the area was down, and this is a you know rural farming country, uh, was down on the road uh, only probably a little, 50 yards from where I had my experience, uh, and this is uh, at a different time, uh, it was the, uh, probably the year before, perhaps, uh, that in broad daylight, and she was absolutely terrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this day, she will not talk to us about it. She, she's come to one or two of the neighborhood meetings and, and sits there crying. And it breaks one's heart about this, but, I mean, it is what it is. So you wonder if um, the experience uh, being subjective is... Uh, you get from it what you bring to it, the attitudes, the beliefs. Well, I don't know. You. I mean, I mean, I told you about, you know, Mrs. Westerman and her five children seeing this landed UFO and beings in broad daylight. And look in Summer's Day, where the town of Normanton is situated, it has a, a, a very busy motorway on either side of it. And she lived at the, the end of a housing estate. What, what, puzzled Mrs. Westerman almost as much about the things they'd seen was the fact that she went and sat down that night and thought it will be on the local TV news and of course there was nothing and she got the local newspaper that week, nothing she even asked some of her neighbours on the same street, nobody had seen a thing, it was almost as if you had to be at that place at that time to encounter whatever happened you know, one of the, I remember I even interviewed one of the children's friends. He'd gone home for lunch. And when he came back, he'd missed it all. It had all been and gone and happened. And he was not happy that he'd missed out on it. <laughs> but yeah. so, so it really puzzled him why nobody else 
saw or heard anything. You know, this is not a remote place. It was an, at the time, was a, an industrial town. All the towns around here were all, all um, coal mining towns. My father worked down the mines all his life. They're all gone now, but the, but at that time, it, it, it and it's but the motorways and everything are still there, still a busy place, uh, and you know, she, she, she literally scratched her head. Why why didn't anybody else see it? And uh, my answer is I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. And I've run the 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 story in our local media uh, several times and said, you know, anyone else come forward and, and nothing, absolutely zero, not a thing. So it is a, it is a very, that's another puzzle. And, um, I, I can use my own, my own mother. Sadly, she's no longer with us, but, um, when she was a young girl, she lived in a very rural part of Northern Ireland. And she told me the story of, she used to play a lot on her own. And she's, I'm playing down by the, the, the river that run near her, her where, where they lived. And she says, I met a fairy. A female fairy with pretty dress and wings, and she spoke to it, and the fairy gave her a little bottle to drink out of, which she did. Said, if you drink this, you'll never have an accident. But it didn't frighten her. She thought this was marvellous. Mm-hmm. You know, she thought it was wonderful. So she took it very positive. Uh, and she told me the story, and I quizzed her about it down the years, and she told my children the same story. And I said, Mum, was it real? She said, well, it was real to me, son. That's all I can tell you. Uh, and there you go. Was that near Newry, by any chance, in Northern Ireland? No, it, it, I mean, it was a very remote place uh, in Northern Ireland. The nearest town was a place called Glengormley. Uh, okay. I'll give you an example. My mum had uh, to walk to get to school. She had to go five miles to walk there and back. So, consequently, she didn't go very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Right in the right in the distance, you couldn't see it, but right in the distance was Belfast, and and the reason that came up is because when she was a couple a few years older, the first time the Germans ever bombed Belfast during the Second World War, she could see all the searchlights and everything going on, oh, yeah. and all the anti-aircraft fire. They were bombing the shipyards there. She couldn't see it directly, but she, she you know she knew where it was. But um, but she, and, and, you know, one of the things I did with some of the abductees when we wrote without consent uh, I asked them about what they felt about the experience and what had happened to them some of them thought it was very positive Paul you know mm-hmm. others not so not so others neither positive nor negative so there was a whole mixture of feelings and opinions about you know the nature and origin of of of, of the subject um, so t- you know that make of it what you will Yes, the reason I asked about Nuri was when I was there in, in 06, uh, I heard uh, reports of uh, fairy experiences from the local people, uh, very positive ones, actually. But uh, in any case, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we're almost uh, out of time here. But we we uh, wanted to get into, uh, if you would care to comment on, uh, and, and you do uh, mention some of these ideas in the book, uh, UFOs are something other than E.T. craft. Hmm. You know, time travelers, that sort of thing. Uh, what, what do you find that young people tend to uh, respond to as far as a belief system on that? Well, I, again, I think that you know that their minds are well and truly open uh, to 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 look at different theories. I mean, I you know I've toyed with theories down the years, um, 
for me personally, I think it's best not to, to hang your washing on any particular line mm. um, because either consciously or not, if, if you do have a, a pet theory, you tend to ignore the evidence that doesn't support it. Mm. And you may not realise you're doing that. You know, it's called confirmation bias. You may not realise sure. you're doing it, but we all do it. It's part of what makes us human. So I, I try to keep an open mind. Uh, and, and I say to the young people, um, you know, make, make up your own mind. Don't believe me. Don't believe him. Don't believe them. Believe yourself. This is a personal, personal investigation for you and you only. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if you come to a decision that you think UFOs can be explained by X and nobody else believes you, it doesn't matter. Because it is a very personal and, as you said earlier, subjective thing as well. Mm-hmm. It's um, almost like it's almost like which is the best movie that's ever been made. Well, we've all got <laughs> our ideas, but none of us are right. None of us are wrong, are we? It's mm-hmm. just subjective. Right. And, uh, and it, it, what was interesting, I, I mentioned the the interview with John Burroughs that I listened to yesterday. John was on with an old colleague of ours called Jenny Randalls. Oh. Jenny is a, a, a long and uh, well-established author and researcher. And um, don't hear a lot of her now. And the reason being is because Jenny thinks she has solved it. As far as she's concerned, she now has the answer to the UFO subject. Therefore, there is no reason for her to go on any further. And I've never heard her say that, ever. Uh, and, and I think, fair play to you, Jenny, to say that. Because some people might criticise it. Uh, well, we'll try to get her on the show about that. That should be yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it, it was really interesting. Yeah, uh, Ben, did you want to jump in here? We have a few, another um, minute or so. Uh, I, I had a very long and complex question that may vaguely apply, but uh, yeah, uh, what the heck? Why not? Um, so you made a really interesting point earlier, Philip, uh, basically saying, you know, when, when when the question was asked, you know, what's the weird, what's you know, the insights of of children or teenagers, you know, what have, what have they ever said that's been relatively interesting or insightful um you made a point that you know when when you're when you're a teenager or well you know at at any age right you don't have the technology to be able to really understand something and that kind of sparked something for me and we may not have time to answer it but i figured i'd ask this i wrote it down because i thought i i I did a, a fun job of articulating it um which was did i actually write it down i did um, so does technology help solve the mystery, or does it only create a border of what can be understood? No, I, I think technology is a, is a great advance. Uh, I think back to when I first started. Had we had the same technology we had we have today, it would have been amazing. Because what you can do is share that, share your findings in an instance, whereas it used to take weeks, if not sometimes months. Uh, and by that time, the trail can have gone cold, of course. Um, so I think t- technology is, is amazing. That's why I've said, you know, the, the people uh, who we've aimed introducing UFOs at, they're going to be the next UFO researchers. They're going to be the next scientists, the next politicians, the next plumbers, the next everything. Mm. And they've got the technology that we have currently. But one of the things that none of us can do is see into the future. I remember speaking to my, my, my kids when they were young and saying, these are all the things I've seen change in my lifetime. You know, color television. I remember when there was black and white. <laughs> so do I. And I said, you just try and imagine 
all the things that you're going to see that we can't even think of now uh, and what that will be or what it, whether it will be a help or a hindrance is a different matter I think it's how you apply it personally um, but I, I think it can only help um, as simple as that um, one of the questions that always gets me and I don't have an answer is why do UFOs have lights on it <laughs> that's actually a really good question yeah it yeah. is and, and the reason I've thought of that because when we were talking beforehand you know Paul talked about having his microphone the wrong way around and someone could see the light on it you know so you don't have the light on the back of it you have it on the front but why do UFOs have lights on it and I was reading today through the official Ministry of Defence file on the Rendlesham Forest incident mm-hmm. and it kind of says the same type of thing you have to remember that the, the, the Rendlesham Forest incident started with lights being seen. Colonel Holt's famous memo is called Unexplained Lights. And he said, if this was an incursion into our airspace, why would they illuminate themselves? Mm. Well, they're talking about, you know, be it the Soviets or whoever at that time. But why, why would they have, why would they have lights? Why would they say, Oh, yeah, we're over here, you know. Yeah. Well, we're almost we're about out of time, but Philip, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about Flying Disc Press, uh, your other books, where people can find out more. Yeah, just punch in flyingdiscpress.com, disc with a K. It'll take, it'll take you to the, to the, to the blog. We have a, a, an array of books from authors from different parts of the world, large books, small books, Something for everyone, and I guarantee you there'll be something on there that that will you will have never seen before. Simple Excellent. as that. Very good. Okay, well, I guess we'll move on to our announcements. Uh, Philip, you're welcome to hang out <laughs> with us a little bit. Uh, go ahead, Ben. Sure thing. So, good riddance to 2020, almost. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Make sure no horrible disasters happen. We hope for a better 2021, and accordingly, uh, we hope to speak at the New England Parafest. On April 10th and 11th in Kittery, Maine, and plan to do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers from there on Sunday the 11th. Uh, more information will be forthcoming. Uh, more shows are being uh, recorded. Shows are being uploaded to BehindTheParanormal.com after all the technical issues we had. And we uh, are back to 2016 at this point. We hope to get them all the way back to 2008 as soon as we can. So uh, you can also uh, find most of those recorded shows or over 900 hours of the show uh, from CBS Radio and from here on WON and, and uh, our Phoenix-based early shows uh, probably um, – on all or most of the major podcast apps and sites, iTunes, etc. So check those out, and uh, you can uh, enjoy those. So uh, what do we have in the lineup for next week, Ben? Okie dokie. So for the first show of 2021, that's January 3rd, we'll welcome back psychologist Dr. John Klimo uh, to talk about his work on channeling, what it is and what's really going on. Uh, you can send your questions to Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or Shane... Shane Searway at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, you could, you, I, you know what? I guess you could ask him questions. Uh, maybe he'll be here. Maybe he won't. We'll, we'll find out, I suppose. Well, that, that's mainly meant for open line shows. Shane always is, uh, is with us, uh, as a co-host on open well, line shows. Well, I'm sure he'd love to answer questions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we have a, a thought today, uh, from the, um, who was it from? Oh, yeah, a thought attributed to that old sweetheart, Albert Einstein. Uh, if you can't explain it simply, 
you don't understand it well enough. And uh, thank you again, Philip, for a wonderful show. Uh, it's uh, we'll have you back very soon. You've been on the show many times, and it's always a great pleasure. And uh, what, what? Just very quickly, what book are you working on next? Um, well, <clears throat> it's not so much books that we're working on next. It's uh, some uh, television documentaries, great, and um, maybe even a movie script as well. Very good. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.